is a Woodside Church podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Jonathan. I think most of you know me in some way or other. I've been here about five years with my wife, Lois. You often won't see us together because she's running around on a Sunday doing all sorts of things. Um, But we belong together, me and Lois at the back. And uh, my son, Peter's at the back. My other son, Ben, has recently moved home. He's over at uh, Great Denham today. Um, And it's good to see you this morning. Um, I am going to talk this morning, and my title is Pray Like Elijah. Now, an experienced preacher once told me, if you talk about prayer or sharing your faith, your congregation starts off feeling guilty. (laughs) Because everybody feels inadequate in those areas. So if that's you this morning, can I just say, I feel totally inadequate to be talking about it as well. Um, Same feeling, but no condemnation. I hope this is encouragement this morning. Um, Encouragement to move on and to get where we all want to be. Now, although Pray Like Elijah is the title, I'm going to start somewhere completely different in the Bible, and I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to break some rules because it's a question I don't think we can actually answer from the Bible with um, certainty. But I want to ask this question at the beginning and come back to it later. So I'll start in Mark 10 um, with... Sorry, need these things now. Um, I'll start in Mark 10 with a familiar uh, passage from the Bible. Mark 10, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And the question I want to start this with is, what would have happened that day just outside Jericho if Bartimaeus hadn't shouted to Jesus? Would he have been healed that day or not? The Bible doesn't tell us. I'll tell you what I think about halfway through. So I'll move on back to Elijah now. And this is a very well-known passage again um, about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, So we set the scene um, in 1 Kings 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, who was the king at the time, and a very, very bad king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then Elijah disappears for three years. Nobody can find him. The Bible tells us where he was, but Ahab didn't know. Start of the next chapter. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. 
So Elijah does that. Um, he meets a guy called Obadiah, has a chat with him on the way. And we'll pick it up again in verse 22 of chapter 18. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud, as small as a man's hand, is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. <coughs> Excuse me. Very well-known story. 
Um, Elijah prays a couple of times in there. He prays for the fire to come and he prays for rain to come. But this is Elijah, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's Elijah. It's one of the big prophets of God. So we're not going to learn from him, are we? He's, he's a, a big guy. He's an impressive guy. It's Elijah. How can I learn from him? I can't emulate Elijah, can I? Well, if we turn forward into the New Testament, we'll find Elijah mentioned in the book of James. And this is what James says about prayer. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. What we find in James is he's specifically telling us, don't look at Elijah and think that kind of life, that kind of prayer is beyond us. Look at Elijah as your example. Elijah was a man, that word, actually the the word for human in the Bible, so it's not male man, it's just a human being. Elijah was a human being, just like us. He prayed. And this is James's rationale for how he says we should pray in church, specifically for the sick. So... Pray in faith for the sick. Does that sound difficult? Who's your example? Elijah. Remember, he was not special. He was like us. So I'm going to look at Elijah and how he prayed and just draw out some things from that story. And first question I want to answer is, is there a secret to prayer? Is there something in there um, that all these great people in the Bible knew Um, Is there actually one thing that we can pull out um, about prayer that we all should know? So, got the books out, got the Hebrew and the Greek out, looked up all the people who prayed in the Bible. I concluded there is one key thing about people who saw great answers to prayer, one thing that they all did. Matty? There is one weird trick. I don't know if you see these things on the internet. Maybe you're not traveling the same place as I am, but you see these all over the time. You want something. You want something to achieve something. You want to lose some pounds. You want to find bargains. There's this one weird trick you can use. Well, there is one weird trick in the Bible. They all prayed. And I'm sorry, but these things are always that disappointing <laughs> if you follow them. Everyone who saw answers to prayer in the Bible prayed. And I have to start there. I have to start with Elijah prayed. The reason I have to start there is because often I don't. I find it hard, as I said at the beginning. I'm not really standing up here as an example of somebody who's got it all sorted. Elijah prayed. Um, Premier Christianity, the um, um, magazine and radio, um, Christian radio company, uh, did a a survey, I think it was about 2020, of prayer, discovered that 52% of non-Christian religions, 50% of the people in non-Christian religions said they prayed regularly. For Christians, it was 38%. Ouch. Ouch. I need to start here because I find praying hard. Um, I'm not very good at it. Here's what um, 
R.C. Sproul, you may know the name, a well-known writer, um, very, very good, challenging writer. Here's what he said. Simply put, prayer has a vital place in the life of the Christian. One might pray and not be a Christian, but one cannot be a Christian and not pray. Prayer is to the Christian what breath is to life, yet no duty of the Christian is so neglected. What he's saying is that when we talk about our faith, we say it's about relationship with God. It's about knowing God, being known by God, and having that relationship with him. And when we talk about prayer, I don't know what prayer conjures up for you. Um, In some denominations, it's a very sort of ritual thing. But prayer is just talking to God. Prayer is when we conduct our relationship with God by talking to him and expecting to hear back. Now for me, last year, prayer has been really hard. 2020, 2021, it was great. I can remember thinking, cool, I've only got a couple of hours. I need to get on with it because I won't fit it all in. This year, so tough. So tough to pray. I've discovered that prayer is unique among all the things I do in that I can be too tired or too busy to pray when I would do almost anything else. If I have to get up for work, or I have to get up because I've got an appointment to get to somewhere, I can do it. If I have to get up to pray, or want to get up to pray, oh, I'm tired. I'm tired. It seems to have that special place of being difficult to do beyond everything else that I do. I also find that I really want to feel like praying. I want to have that sense of, yeah, I want to go and pray. And when I'm praying, I want to have that feeling that God's there. And then I look in the Bible for the places where it says to pray. Where does it say I have to feel like it? It just says pray. It just says pray. Now, obviously, we want to know God. We want to feel that he's there. But it's not a precondition. And if we're not feeling it, we can still go on and pray. And then there's distraction. This thing, you recognize this thing? Oh dear, you open it up and you say, even open it up the Bible in the morning sometimes. And Okay, let's go to John chapter, ooh, ooh, Andrew Neal's tweeted something. Mm. Or whoever it is you follow, or there's a TikTok or whatever. And 40 minutes later, oh, it's time for breakfast. Um, Here's what a Christian author wrote about these things. He said, guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour, first I must attend to this or that. Such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day. And that was Martin Luther writing about mobile phones. (laughs) What I'm finding... In, in what is a, admittedly a difficult year where it's difficult to pray is the important thing is to start. Put that over the other side of the room. For me, get a paper Bible so there's nothing distracting and just start. Don't put it off, just start. And then we look at Jesus' prayer life and we understand why. The Son of God, God incarnate on the earth, spent so much time in praying. How can it not be essential for us because it's God inviting us into the throne room of heaven no wonder there's opposition and there's difficulty in my flesh and possibly the devil around me doesn't want me to do it because God invites me into the throne room of heaven to sit at his feet and say father will you do something on in this earth for me that's what we're doing and the opposition to that is clear and obvious 
devil doesn't want that. My flesh doesn't want me to do that. But that's what God's doing. It's amazing. Elijah prayed. That's the first point. First, first thing we need to get in place. Second thing was that Elijah prayed God's word back to God. Now this is a little bit of a strange one. So God says to Elijah, present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Elijah goes and presents himself to Ahab. Okay, God's going to send rain. What does Elijah then do? He goes up onto the mountain and kneels down, puts his head between his knees and prays for all he's worth for rain to come. What's going on? God has said rain is coming. Why does Elijah need to pray? Why doesn't he say, I presented myself to Ahab right now, let's just wait for the rain. What's going on? Is God sovereign or not? Is he going to do what he said or not? Isaiah, in Isaiah 62, we find this in the middle of the chapter. Isaiah says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now what you hear there is Isaiah saying to you who call on the Lord, you people who are praying in Jerusalem, don't you rest and give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, until he does great things for Jerusalem. Now that starts at verse 6. They're not showing you the verses there. Um, Starts at verse 6. Verses 1 to 5 of Isaiah 62 is God saying, this is what I am going to do for Jerusalem. Yeah? And carrying on, verse 8, God says, I have sworn I'm going to do all this for Jerusalem. And yet in the middle of that, he says, get on your knees and make it happen. There's a mystery here. I'm going to skip the next slide, Matty. I'm just going to talk about it. God sent his prophet Jeremiah to look at a potter once um, and said, Jeremiah, look at the way that the potter can remake the pots. That's how your prophecy works, Jeremiah. I've made you a prophet to the nations. If you prophesy something to a nation that is bad and that nation repents and comes to me, then I will change that. I'll change my intention to that nation. If you prophesy something good to a nation and that nation falls away from me, then I will change my intention to that nation. It's not directly about prayer, but what we find is that God says things, God prophesies things and says he will do things, and our response is important in whether that happens or not. There's a mystery here. There's a mystery about God's sovereignty and our involvement in it. Um, A little personal tale to insert in here. Um, On Pentecost Sunday... Lois went off to here, went off to church early, as she often does, and I was left with an hour or two. Um, Peter was getting up. And as I often will, if I can avoid this thing, sat down with the Bible. And because it was Pentecost Sunday, I thought I'll, I'll just open to one of the places where the Spirit comes. Not the first one. So I went to the um, Acts chapter 4, where they've been experiencing some opposition, the disciples, and they all get together and they pray. And they pray, God, make us bold. And the Holy Spirit comes to make them bold. And that passage really sort of impacted me that morning. I thought, oh, this feels like something God wants me to bring. But it's not a word. I can't, I can't see an application for me to come up to the mic and bring. <clears throat> it's also a bit of a weird one just to come up and read that passage as a Bible passage, which is something I will sometimes do. What, what, what am I going to do with this? 
Um, it seems that there's, this prayer is important today. God's highlighting it to me. What am I going to do with it? Um, it never occurred to me that I might just pray it. <laughs> um, but I got to church that morning, and Mohan was preaching. And he came over to me and said, I'm preaching this morning. You've been on my heart all week, and I've been praying for you. And I would like you to pray after I finish preaching. I'm preaching on David and Goliath and how David faced Goliath, fought Goliath, and finished Goliath. And here I was, turning up at church with a, my uh, tags in my Bible in a prayer for boldness. I was flabbergasted by that. That sort of thing doesn't happen. Yeah? Never happened to me, that sort of thing. Um, and so I think I've never prayed with more faith um, in public that that was what God wanted me to pray. But then when I started preparing this, I was thinking, why? If God wants to make us bold, can't he just do it? If he wants to pour the Holy Spirit out and make us bold, can't can't God just be sovereign and do that? Um, So my question is, when I'm doing that sort of thing, when God is prompting me to pray something that God wants, what is going on? And I think there are three things that are going on. Probably more, these are three I can think of. The first one is participation. If you go right back to Genesis, Genesis chapter one, God says, I'm gonna create mankind in my image and let them rule the rest of the world. It's always been God's plan that he does not the great big dictator, but that we're invited into his plans and that we have that, um, originally that rulership of the whole earth. Uh, Psalm 8, again, says the same thing. You've made mankind a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and made him ruler over creation. And so I think the first thing that's happening is God is allowing us to participate in the world from a position where we have an effect. Yes, God is sovereign, but he has decided um, to give us what um, the philosopher Pascal called the dignity of causality which is a nice phrase. It means that we are actually, we have the the dignity in ourselves to be able to affect things through prayer. We're not just subject to, um, well, we are subject to God's sovereign will, but it's not just that everything happens as it was going to happen anyway and we can't do anything about it. He said you've got the dignity of causality. Um, I like the phrase, which is my phrase, the privilege of participation. And that God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, says you get to participate. And the prayers that you pray have real effect. Second thing that's going on um, is agreement. We are bringing ourselves, when we pray, into agreement with God's will. And we're saying, yes, I want that. Because God might say things and you think, no, don't want that. But we are actually saying, yes, this is for me. We're getting our wills in line with God's. Best examples in the Bible I can think of. Mary, when God says, he's going to ruin her life. Yeah? I'm going to make you an unmarried, pregnant mother, and you're going to live with that for the rest of your life, but it's for my purposes. And Mary says, be it unto me according to your will. Obviously, Jesus. Um, Jesus, not my will but yours, God, he prays. I don't want to go through the pain of crucifixion, but I will if that's your will. There was a king called Jehoash in the Old Testament. 
And Elisha, Elijah's uh, successor as prophet, um, was basically on his dead, deathbed, and Jehoash went to see him. And Elisha said to Jehoash, I've got a word from God for you. Hit the floor with your arrows from your bow. Now, I've always thought that that was take some arrows and hit the floor. But reading it up, it seems it's more likely that he was firing arrows into the floor. Um, and Jehoash said, all right. And he fired three arrows into the floor. And Elisha said, if only, if only you'd done five or six. Because God said that to you. And if you'd enthusiastically taken on what God said and kept doing it and said, God says this, so I'm just going to do this until I've run out, then you would have beaten your enemies completely. As it is, you're going to beat them a little bit. Three arrows worth, but not five or six arrows worth. <coughs> Jehoash had the opportunity to agree with God in doing something fairly strange that God told him to do, and he chose not to. As we agree with God, um, we need to avoid what is called in some, some Christian writings, therapeutic Christianity. Um, now, therapeutic Christianity is where everything is about me. And it's characterized by, I mean, you'll know the, uh, the um, prosperity gospel preachers. God wants you to be wealthy, and that's the main thing. And phrases like, live your best life. It's all about me and my self-realization, whether that's money or influence or whatever. Um, <clears throat> some of what God wants is not directly about me. In fact, lots of the really big things God wants is not directly about me. And he wants me to agree with him on those. That's why the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other things about your life and the things that you need to live, we'll sort that out, but seek the kingdom of God first. <clears throat> and the reason for highlighting that is the, the third thing that's going on is submission. Submission to God's will. We don't just agree with it, but we submit to the impact that that has on our lives. I was in a prayer meeting a long time ago, um, basically a prayer for revival meeting, small group of people at a church. Um, <clears throat> and a guy prayed, and the prayer meeting moved on, and I didn't hear anything else, because I was sitting there thinking, did he really pray what I think he just prayed? Because everything in his prayer said, God, please will you send revival, because I find church really boring. Now, I'm probably maligning the guy. I, I can't remember exactly who it was. It was one or two people, but lovely guy, Christian guy. Um, and I would be maligning him to say that's the attitude he took. But I remember that because every time after that when people have started talking about revival or when I've read books that talk about revival, I'm thinking, what, does, what would that actually mean to be part of that for me? You read about, oh, the revival was great. Is it going to be great meetings? Is Sunday morning going to be wonderful? And then I go away and come back again next Sunday morning. And you read about revivals. Well, we met every day for two years. Who, who was meeting? What was the impact on their lives? Because if I want to be involved in that, that's going to be me. What's that going to do to my hobbies, to my work, to all the other things that I do and that I value? On the day of Pentecost, a church of 120 people became a church of 
3,120 people, right? round figures probably. That means that everybody in that original 120 had a 25-person small group to look after. No exceptions. If you're in that original 120, God moved. You now have all these baby lambs to shepherd. Yeah. Now, it probably didn't work exactly like we work. But think of things in those terms when you're thinking about the prophecies that are going on at the moment that God's going to move. Yes, it will be great, but it will cost. Boy, will it cost. <clears throat> when Jesus... Um, told his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers um, into the fields. Do you know what the next thing he did was? He sent them out, the people that he told to pray. He said, right, I've told you to pray this, you've prayed this, go out into the fields. You are the answer to your own prayer. That's the sort of thing God does. He gets you praying something and he makes you the answer to the prayer and you pay some of that cost. And I'll tell you, we should be at the point where we say, what I see happening is so worth it that I'll happily pay that cost. If we can bring people to know God in Bedford and it costs us our hobbies, that's a trade well worth it. It's difficult to think in those terms. And I struggle with it. I want to do this, I want to do this. I particularly want to sit and watch the telly and we'll go to bed. Um, But that's what God's calling us to looking at that cost, praying it, knowing it's going to cost us. So I'm going to come back now to that question about Bartimaeus. Does he get healed if he doesn't cry out to Jesus? And my answer to that is no, I don't believe he would have been. Um, I don't believe the, the woman with the issue of blood that Ruth spoke about a few weeks ago, I don't believe if she hadn't forced her way through the cloud to, cloud, crowd to touch Jesus' coat, I don't believe she would have been healed. I don't believe the centurion's son would have been healed if the centurion hadn't gone to find Jesus. All of these people, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Your faith has got you what you want. And the faith is in the prayer and in the action. Point three. Elijah prayed earnestly. Sorry, that's the end of the what's going on. I'm back to the original four. I'm a couple of um, bullet point indents deep, really. Elijah prayed earnestly. Um, Now what that says in the Greek, is Elijah prayed with prayer. Often in the Bible, they repeat things in the underlying languages to emphasize it. So Elijah prayed with prayer. He really prayed. So we could take the word earnestly and replace it with diligently. (laughs) So if you would, exercise for yourselves is to go back and listen to all of last week's excellent preach on sluggard versus diligent and apply that to prayer because all of it applies. Elijah prayed with prayer. Jesus told parables specifically about always pray and never give up. And Brenda has prayed every day about something God has said and has seen some of it so far. That's the example, folks. That's what this is about, diligently, earnestly. The two questions that will drive that what really matters to me and where does my help come from what's important you go back to the therapeutic thing is it all about me or is it about God and his plans as well because all of the things that we pray for ourselves are good it's good to pray but not only that what really matters to me and then 
where does my help come from? Which is a quote from the Psalms, and the answer is, my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. If you've got those two things sorted, what matters and where can I get the answer from? You will pray. Except, are there times when you shouldn't pray? Any times when you should not pray, assuming that you have the faith? Did God ever tell off one of his servants in the Bible for praying? Well, I found one. (laughs) Point four, Elijah's... Oh, we got to the end. It should be on... uh, Yeah, point four, Elijah's prayer of faith matched his life of faith. He wasn't just praying, he was living it. So... Buried in that passage in uh, Kings that we read, God says, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now, Ahab was murderous for God's prophets. Absolutely murderous. He'd killed them all. And on the way to see Ahab, Elijah comes across a guy called Obadiah who's hiding some prophets. And Obadiah reminds him that this is what Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who's even worse, what they do to God's prophets. And... Obadiah's not quite sure that Elijah is really going to go and show himself to Ahab. And Elijah says, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So it's not just the prayer. Elijah is saying, God has told me to do this, and I'm going to do that. And yes, Ahab may execute me, because he's executed hundreds of other prophets so far. Obviously, when Elijah then gets to the Mount Carmel, He stands up and he prays in faith for fire. Imagine if God had not answered that one. That would have been the end for Elijah. And so my answer to it is, are there times you shouldn't pray only if you're supposed to act? When Moses and the people of Israel were standing on the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's hordes of armies coming towards them, Moses said to the people of Israel, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You, only, you need only to be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Moses is there. and It doesn't actually tell us what Moses cried, but Moses says this great thing of faith to this right, and then presumably cries to God, God, do something. And God says, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. There are times when the right thing to do is the action of faith. And actually, I know that I can use prayer as a substitute for action. I was very, very impacted. If you can find it in in YouTube, back in the summer of 2020, by Adrian Horner's message during the pandemic, that he came about the, um, the man at the pool and getting up off the mat. And one of the things he said is, you're always after one more prayer, one more word from God before you do what he's told you to do. And that rings true for me. And I think that can ring true for many people. Um, So the only time not to pray in faith is if it's the time to act in faith. And then you act in faith with prayer in the background as well. Um, I, I I believe for a while that there are some men in the church who need to act on what God's telling them. I don't know who they are, 
but I think there's a, a, a few men in the church who've heard something from God and are looking at thinking, oh, really? And that they just need to say, it's, it's the time to move. It's the time to move and do things now. And so, what do we learn in, in wrapping up? Well, it's very easy. I've given four points. So we can turn each of those four points into something we can do. First of all, pray. Secondly, pray God's word. Pray this thing. This is full of stuff that you can pray. God is not willing that any should perish. That can keep you in prayer for a lifetime. God also says things specifically and directly to us as a people and to us as individuals. We take those on board and we pray. I've been really impacting preparing this, that I need to find the things that God has said and not just wait for them to happen, but to go back to God and participate and agree and submit to what God said about his plan for me. Keep going. Keep at it, like Brenda. Keep going. You will see the fruit one day. And then live it. Don't let it just be prayer. Make sure that your life, the faith that underpins your life and the way you live, matches the faith that you're praying in. That's not where I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to wrap up by coming back to two questions. Um, I just want to talk for a minute. I have got two minutes left. Just want to talk for a minute about Bartimaeus's cloak. Coming back to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, when Jesus said, come, and they said, Jesus is calling you, it says he threw aside his cloak. Now you can miss that bit. But for a poor man in Israel at the time, that was his main asset. That was the most valuable thing he owned. And most importantly, that was the thing that kept him warm in the cold night. He was a beggar. He wouldn't have owned a house. He would have, maybe he could sleep in relatives' places. But even for poor peasants who had their houses, they were kept warm by their cloak. Uh, you find in the Old Testament that people could use their cloak as um, collateral for a loan. You give, loan me some money and I'll give you my cloak. But the person who took it was not allowed to keep it overnight. He had to give it back before night time so that the person whose cloak it was could stay warm in the night. It was an important thing. It was probably all Bartimaeus could call his own. He was blind. He wasn't going to find it easy to find that cloak again. It could be stolen. And what Bartimaeus said, they said, Jesus is calling you. And he said, right, I'm not going to be hampered by that thing. That thing that I own, that's the only asset I have. I'm not going to be hampered by that. I'm going to get to Jesus. Yeah. Um, so the question I'm going to leave you with is what really matters? What really, really matters to you? I've already asked that question. We have had prophecies as a people. Something like this over the last little while. This is just one that I happen to have a, a hard copy of. There's been quite a lot like this. Um, This is Judith, who's standing on the the hill fort near Bedford, looking over the town, and she says, As I spoke, I saw fire running down our streets and roads, up the drives and footpaths of our houses, the fire of God, fire representing the burning of rubbish, dead branches and refining. Like a savanna, grass and trees are burned away and new growth springs up. The burning is required first, then the hidden seeds in the soil spring up and there is new growth and life. And then I saw a river, the river of life flooding the roads, streets, all across Bedford. So, does that happen? God's shown that to somebody. Does it happen? Yes, if we pray. I'm going to ask Samuel, if uh, I have already asked Samuel, 
if he will wrap up in prayer. I want to leave that question, what really matters, along with the other one that went with it, where does your help come from? I want to leave that hanging for you to answer. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.